Hey, good morning, church. That was a robust good morning. That makes me glad. Welcome here this morning. For those of you who are online, glad that you've joined us in that way and looking forward to maybe even as early as next Sunday seeing many of you out as, uh, as things return to a little more normalcy here. We might even have cinnamon buns and coffee out there, and it's, it's just going to be good to be able to wander that whole foyer and talk with whoever we want to talk to. That's going to be good. Uh, so um, anyway, I want to congratulate you for making it through January. Good for you. We're in February, which uh, for me always just kind of feels like, all right, I think we can do this. We made it to February. I think we're going to make it through this winter. Um, farmers, have we had enough snow? Can we stop praying for snow? Will you release us from that burden? Are any farmers in the room? Will you release us from praying for snow already? Anyway, we do thank God for all that moisture. Before we go into the message this morning, uh, it's always an opportunity just to highlight some of the happenings in our church uh, family matters, things for celebration. And uh, I do want to mention, because it was brought to my attention this morning, that the guy who was playing drums, Jim Johnston, turns 55 today. So I know where you are, Jim, but happy birthday to you. In the first service, I, well, I said, remember, I remember as a kid, Freedom 55? Is that true? <laughs> I used to think that was true, Freedom. Now I'm 40. I'm like, I don't think so. I don't think so. I asked him first service, Freedom 55, does he feel free? And he just pointed at his four kids that were still at home. No, no, not a lot of freedom there yet. But uh, anyway, happy birthday, Jim. And it is awesome to see five-day combs. There were four last time. Well, the fifth one was in there, but now the fifth one is out. And uh, Ethan James was born this week. So congratulations, David and Amanda, for, uh, for doing that again, and especially to you, Dave, because I know you've got the hardest part of that. Uh, men have a very underrated, you know, role in that whole process, and so anyway, um, <laughs> is that true? He's like, I'm not going there, but anyway, congratulations to you guys. We're super excited, amazed that you made it out here. Amazing that you made it out. He, he was good. He helped you out, helped you breathe. He let you squeeze his hand. Yeah? Excellent. Well, we praise God for a healthy delivery. Family's good. Is it yeah. good? Can be good? Should be good? So here's what I actually want you to do. I want you to close your eyes for a moment. And I want you to think of that word, the word family. Think on that word. Family. What emotions come to the surface when you think of that word, family? What do you feel? Family. All right, you can open your eyes. It's a dangerous exercise. In the first service, some eyes just never opened. They stayed shut. The rest, the message. I would like you to open your eyes, please. Um, when you hear the word family, what do you feel? I think a lot of you, you're going to feel like maybe that primary emotion is going to be joy. It's going to be such a happy word, a happy thought. That'll be true for many of us. I wonder for some of you, maybe that, that primary emotion you feel when you hear the word family is sadness. 
Maybe sadness for the family that you hoped would be that never was. Or sadness for the family that once was that is no more. For some of you, I think maybe that primary emotion is sadness. I wonder for some of you, maybe that primary emotion is anger. Anger because family was not what it ought to have been. Because that word is a word that brings hurt. Whatever the emotion is, like the word family and the the idea of family uh, probably evokes stronger emotions than almost any other idea, for good or for bad. And I think that's because family is just a core part of the human experience, isn't it? Like it's right at the center of the human experience. It's something we all experience in one way or another. Some would even say that family is everything. You ever seen that? Some version of that, you know, like some like nice little warm statement that goes on a plaque that ladies hang in their, you know, their house somewhere. Family is everything. Maybe you've said something like that. I remember last week I put a picture of me cuddling with my youngest daughter, Pippa, who's nine. I just love her cuddles. They grow up too fast. And I, and I put on Facebook picture that I said, fame and fortune ain't got nothing on cuddles. And I believe that. Like, I mean, if, if it was fame or fortune or family, I would take family because family is so important. And some would say maybe family is everything. In fact, there's a saying that you've heard that goes like this, blood is thicker than water. You've heard that? Now, we know that's like scientifically true that blood is thicker than water, but essentially what that statement means is that our, our commitment, our allegiance to family is ultimate. It is our primary allegiance. It's a way of saying family is everything. Blood is thicker than water. Now, only recently did I actually find out kind of how that originated, and it's a very old saying, and what water meant. We all know that blood meant, you know, our, our, our family, our biological family. What I did know is that the water represents baptism, the waters of baptism. And so, it's kind of that saying is a way of saying that the bond of family, the biological family is so strong that it might even be stronger than the bond of faith. And I wonder what Jesus would say about that. We're going to explore that this morning. What is family? What is family in the kingdom of God? See, we're we're kind of still near the beginning of the sermon series through the gospel of Mark. It's going to take us right through to Easter Sunday, where we are just uh, seeing how Jesus has established and is building this kingdom of God on earth, of which all who follow Him become a part. And so we're exploring what this kingdom is And what it looks like to live out the reality of the kingdom in our own lives as followers of Jesus. What are the characteristics of the kingdom of God? And so each week, as we go through the gospel of Mark, we're discovering these characteristics of God's kingdom. And this morning, we're going to talk about family. And I've called this message, Putting the Kin in Kingdom, just because I thought it was clever. And I know pastors are the only one who get a kick out of sermon titles. But here in Mark chapter 3, where we left off last week, Daniel did a great job last week, uh, brought us to the beginning of Mark chapter 3. You can turn there if you have your Bible with you. Uh, These words will be up on the screen as well. What we're going to find here is that uh, we encounter Jesus' family for the very first time. You see, Mark isn't like the Gospel of Matthew or Luke, where we have the birth story of Jesus, where we meet Mary and we meet Joseph even before we meet Jesus. No, Mark starts his gospel, his account of Jesus' life and teaching with Jesus already being an adult, beginning his ministry. So we don't actually meet the family of Jesus until this moment 
in Mark chapter 3, and it's a very interesting encounter because it doesn't go at all like you would expect it to go. When you think of Jesus and family, faith and family. So let's look at this first encounter as we're introduced to the family of Jesus. Mark chapter 3, I'm going to start reading at verse 20. We'll go to the end of the chapter, verse 35. It says, then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered. So he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of Jesus, for they said, he is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebub, which was just another name for Satan back in the day. He's possessed by the prince of demons. By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. And so Jesus called them over to him, and he began to speak to them in parables. And he said, how can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven, for they are guilty of an eternal sin. Now, Jesus said this because they were saying about him, he has an impure spirit. In other words, he's not doing God's ministry, he's doing Satan's work. Then Jesus' brother and sisters arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone uh, in to call him, and a crowd was sitting around Jesus, and they told him, they said, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Now, listen to Jesus. He says, who are my mother and my brothers? He asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. What would happen if you tried pulling that stunt? Who's my family? Annika's with the friends, playing video games. Hey, Annika, your dad's on the phone. He said, you got to come home. Who is my dad? Really? Who's my mom? You, you're my dad. You're my mom. Like, this is weird. But he's doing something important here, we're going to see. We, we might just kind of think that what we see in Jesus is, is maybe like a rude disregard for the feelings of his family, kind of just kind of dismissive and flippant about what family is. Maybe he's just having an off day, kind of a one-off. But we see that what Jesus is doing here is not a one-off. In fact, we see, see this thread right throughout all of the Gospels of Jesus We only have a handful of encounters between Jesus and his family, and in every single one of them, almost every one, we see something very similar happening, and it's important to understand the nature of his kingdom. In fact, if you go to the Gospel of Luke there, right, we got the birth story, but then in Luke chapter 2, you've got that first encounter where Jesus is, maybe he's 12 years old, right? His family's been to Jerusalem. Now it's time for them to go back to the hometown in Nazareth. And so his family leaves and they're on their way to Nazareth. And then they realize, Mary and Joseph, where's Jesus? He's not here. Oh my goodness, we lost Jesus. So they, they backtrack. They go, um, they go back to Jerusalem. They go and they find him in the temple. And I just want to get Jesus' words right. Uh, so they say, son, 
Why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. You can understand that. What does he say? Why are you searching for me? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Kind of a lippy kid. And then you have, in the Gospel of John chapter 2, where John records that first miracle where Jesus is with his family at a wedding in Cana, and his mother comes to him because at this wedding feast, uh, you know, the party's gone so long to the night they've run out of wine, and Jesus' mother, Mary, comes to him and says, Jesus, they have no more wine. And he says to him, woman, why do you involve me? Try, try calling your wife woman. Don't. Don't. Right? I mean, like, okay, just so you know, like, that would be disrespectful today. That wasn't necessarily a disrespectful term there, but you know what it isn't? It's not like a really warm, necessarily familiar term. It's kind of like a neutral term. It doesn't say mother. Oh, mama. Woman. Why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. Hmm. Okay. And then you have, in, back in the Gospel of, of Luke, chapter 11, verse 27 and 28, you have this peculiar little inter- interaction where Jesus is teaching And a woman in the crowd calls out to Jesus and says, blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. It's probably a woman who's like, oh man, I wish I had a son like you. I wish I was your mother. Blessed is your mother who gave you birth. And what does Jesus say? Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. It's interesting. Every time there's an interaction between Jesus and his family, you see this deflection of Jesus away from the elevation of the family relationships. It's very noticeable what's happening. What we see in this story and really in the Gospels is that Jesus is challenging their conception of family, what family is. You see, in that culture, family really was everything. It wasn't just a saying. Family was everything. Like your identity as a person was completely wrapped up In your family relationships, in your clan, that was your destiny. It was predetermined for you. That was your identity. The meaning of your life was to bring honor to your family. It was to make them proud. It was to serve the success of your family or your clan. That's why you existed. Family was everything. Your greatest obligation was to make your family proud. And Jesus' family was not proud in this moment. Why? It it, it says that they came and and they said, he is out of his mind, which literally means they came to, to seize him forcibly, to take hold of him physically and remove him and to bring him home. Why? Because they were not proud of what he was doing. They were embarrassed. Jesus was bringing dishonor on them. He was acting in kind of a way, doing these things, which I, they felt reflected poorly on him because all the influential people of the day, you know, the, the leaders, the spiritual leaders, did not approve of what Jesus was doing. And they thought, he's not making, he's not, he, he's, not, he's, not making the, he's not elevating the family name here. We need to go and we need to take hold of our brother, of our son. They weren't proud. We find out later that they didn't actually believe in Jesus, but, but really nor did his clan or his community. 
If you continue in the gospel of Mark, you come to chapter 6 and you see the same theme. You see in chapter 6, verse 1, it says, Jesus left there and he went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue in his hometown, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did he get these things? They asked, what is this wisdom that's been given to him? What are these remarkable miracles he is performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Who was most offended by him? Those who were closest to him. His family, his hometown, his community. Why? Doesn't he know who he is and who he's supposed to be? He's a carpenter. Your job is to, is to like, you know, take daddy's business. That's who you are. And you think you can go and be something different than what you're supposed to be? And they took offense at him. They didn't believe. So we see this opposition from those closest to Jesus in what he's doing. And how does, how does Jesus respond to his family? Well, when, he, when he's told, hey, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. He says, who are my mother and brothers? Here are my brother and brothers. You're my brother. You're my sister. Here's my mother. Here's my family. And what is Jesus doing? Well, I think he's doing two things that give us some insight into the kingdom of God here. The very first thing that he's showing us is this. Obedience to God comes before obligation to family. Now, that was a radical idea back then, and it's maybe a little radical today too in some ways. Obedience to God comes before obligation to family. It's interesting. Mark has this literary device that the other Gospels don't really employ much. And so if you hear last week, Daniel talked to you about the chiasm. We all learned about a chiasm. That's pretty cool. And there's another technique that Mark uses here. I don't really know what it's called. It's kind of, I call it the sandwich method. I don't think that's a technical term. But what Mark will do, see, these stories are in some of the other Gospels, but he just, the Gospel writer just tells it straight through. But what Mark often does is he'll take a story, he'll split it in half, and he'll put like a different thing in the middle. And the thing that he puts in the middle is supposed to give us some insight into what is happening in the story. And so Jesus' family comes to take hold of him because they're upset at what he is doing, And then Jesus goes into this teaching about Satan and the work of Satan and showing how he cannot be doing the work of Satan because how could Satan come and oppose Satan? No, he is doing the work of God. And and, and what Mark is doing when he's putting that in there is he's showing us that Satan often wants to use those who are closest to us, even the family, to, to, to get Jesus off of his purpose. He wants to take the family... And use them to deter Jesus from his mission. Any attempt to deter Jesus from his mission is satanic. That's what Mark is saying here. And so you'll have Jesus say this in Luke chapter 11, or sorry, 14, verse 26. Some pretty strong language. Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. If you don't hate your family, you can't follow me. And what is Jesus saying? Well, hopefully you're smart enough, and I think you are to know. What he's not saying is that you're supposed to hate your family. 
What he's saying is don't make an idol of your family. Don't allow family to usurp your devotion to God. And of the things that can be idolized in our lives, family is certainly one of them. And I've said it before, I'll say it again. When we, when we hear the word idol, we always think maybe that's a bad thing. Um, and sometimes it is. You know, drugs, sex, and rock and roll. Kind of an age where, you know, that, those were the idols. But you know what? Idols aren't necessarily bad things. It can be a little sneaky. Idols can, are good things that are out of priority in our life. Family, anything that's good, church, can be an idol if it, if it takes God's proper place in our life. And so what Jesus is saying is don't idolize family. Don't put obligation to family or duty to family over devotion to God. Be devoted to God. So what Jesus is doing in this story is he's, this is not a rejection of his family. He's, say, he's not saying my family doesn't matter. Family, what is family? It's like a social construct, whatever. He's not rejecting his family. In fact, I think it would be true to say that being devoted to God first before obligation to family is the means to truly love your family. Because if we are devoted to God, if we receive his teaching, if we are empowered by him, he sends us back into our families not to submit to them, but to properly serve them. And we know that what Jesus is doing here isn't a rejection of family or of his family because look how he continues to talk about family in the gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 7, verses 9 to 12, you have Jesus interacting with the Pharisees. He says, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and he also said, anyone who curses their father and mother is to be put to death, but you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is korban, that is, devoted to God, then, no long, then you no longer let them do anything for their father and mother. Thus, you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. Essentially, what he's saying is, you guys have deployed a nice little trick. You say this magic word, korban, over some money or some resource you have, and you think that if you declare this thing sacred, now that's off limits, and if your mom and dad have need, you're not obligated to take what you possess and use it to help your family because that's been devoted to God. He says, that doesn't honor God at all. So Jesus, he's not rejecting family or diminishing those relationships. And in Mark 10, he'll talk about the radical commitment between a husband and a wife in marriage. And we're going to get there later in this series. We even see it on the cross. At the end of the Gospel of John, in Jesus' dying breath, as he's hanging there, paying for the sins of the world, he looks down and he sees his mom full of grief. Where is Joseph in the story? Why don't we see that Joseph? Because he probably died. You know, guys died young back in the day. He's already gone. His mom is losing his son now, lost her husband. What's going to happen to Mary? He's dying on the cross for the sins of the world. He looks down and he thinks of his mom. And he says, woman, here is your son, turning to one of his disciples, John. Woman, here is your son. And to John he said, here is your mother. In other words, he's taking care of his mom from the cross. Kind of amazing. It says, from that time on, the disciple took her into his home as if she was his own mother. Jesus was going to ensure that in his absence, his mother had what she needed, had family. 
So what Jesus is not saying in this story is that, you know, family doesn't matter. It's not a rejection of family. I think what he's saying is that if we follow God, if we are devoted to his kingdom, family might reject you. Family might reject you. And he alludes to this in some pretty um, strong language. In Matthew chapter 10, verses 34, when he says, Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Like, that's hard, right? A man's enemies will be members of his own household. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. What is he getting at? Okay, let's not misunderstand. He's not saying, I delight in seeing families torn apart. Well, that makes me happy. No, no. What he's saying is, when I come to establish my kingdom... Some of those who respond to that call to follow God will be opposed by family. They will be opposed in big ways and in small ways from obeying God. And that will involve in rupture in families. He says that will happen. Family may oppose you, impede disobedience, impede, try to impede your obedience to God. And I don't know if any of you have ever experienced that. I remember being in Europe, in Macedonia, where I was working with some people. For them to profess their faith in Jesus and to be baptized was to, was to lose their entire family. And they had this agonizing decision to make. Would they publicly declare Jesus as their Lord and be baptized and lose their family? Or would they just go with their family? Some people had to make choices that stark because the family opposed them that much. And here you see this experience of Jesus, right? His family is not happy with his ministry, this mission. They oppose him at this point in the story. They try to deter him from doing what his father, his heavenly father, has called him to do. So let me ask you, have you ever experienced that? In some way, maybe explicitly or implicitly, in big ways or in small ways? Have you ever experienced opposition or maybe pressure from those closest to you, from your family? Opposition in doing what it is that God was calling you to do? Opposition from being fully devoted to God? Maybe opposition in, in publicly aligning yourself with Jesus, being baptized. I know a while ago there was someone baptized in this church. Their family was, was so upset about that, they tried to plan a family trip around the date of the baptism so that they couldn't be a part of it because they wanted to stop that. They did not want that to happen. It happened anyway. What could that look like? It might mean going to church. I mean, we've got people in this church that are spiritually single. You've got a spouse that isn't here, doesn't want to be here, doesn't want you to be here, doesn't want you to be involved. It lets you know so. It applies pressure. Maybe it's the opposite. Maybe you've got like a big family in your church, and this is our family church. We've got four generations and maybe you feel like for your spiritual growth, you need to go somewhere else. You need to move on. But hey, this is our church. This is our family church. What would it mean for you to leave and go to somewhere else? And so there's this pressure 
to stay in this appearance. Maybe God is laying on your heart just to do something, to be a part of something, to go into ministry, to go to Bible college, and so on to go instead of going to there, you know, to, 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 to get that education, and maybe feel a, a call into missions or whatever it might be. And maybe people around you aren't really thrilled about that and try to deter you from that because that doesn't fit their picture of what they think you ought to do. This can happen in big ways, it can happen in small ways. But there will be times, Jesus is saying, when even family will oppose you in obedience to God. And so that the first thing that we see in the story is that in the kingdom, obedience to God is above obligation to family. In other words, in the kingdom, family is important, but our life is not to be defined by family. Our life is not to be defined by family. Our ultimate devotion is given to God. And there's a second thing I think Jesus is showing us here about the kingdom. He's showing us that in the kingdom, family is redefined and repurposed. It's not a rejection of family. It's not even a replacing of family. It's a redefining of what family is and repurposing the family. It's not that the family unit ceases to exist. It's by God's design. Husband, wife, mother, father, parent, child, these are categories that God has made for our good that we must cherish, that we must promote in a world that wants to undo and call all of these things not good design or God's design, but just tradition and social structure to be redesigned. No, this, the family is God's good design. But what Jesus is showing us here is that familial love is to be extended beyond the walls of your living room. Familial love goes further than your biological family because Jesus is showing us that in the kingdom is birthed a new family, a divine family. And so Jesus looks at them and he says, you're my family. To those who follow him, you're my family. You're my family. Your family and can you imagine what a comfort that might have been to those to whom he was speaking, some of whom surely would have been without family for one reason or another, through circumstances of life, or maybe had been rejected by their family because they had chosen to follow Jesus. Can you imagine what a comfort that would have been to hear Jesus say, you are my family. And we are family to one another. That would have been a comfort even to those first disciples. In fact, we know it was because in Mark um, chapter 10, Peter, he's thinking of all he's given up to follow Jesus. And he says, in Mark uh, 10 verse 28, he says, Lord, we've given up everything to follow you. And Jesus replies, truly I tell you, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in these are good words, in the present age and in the life to come, eternal life 
It's not just, yeah, you got to give up stuff here, but trust me, it's all worth it. Like up there one day in heaven after you die, it'll all have been worth it. No, what he's saying is whatever you've given up, and some of you have given up homes and families because they've turned their back on you, you will not fail if you follow me to receive a hundred times as much in this life. And what does that mean? Homes? A hundred homes? Does that mean if I follow Jesus, I got like a beach house and a lake house and a mountain house and the condo downtown? Is that... No, he's talking about your house, and your house, and your house, and your house. He said, but in this new divine family, we belong to one another. He's talking about the church when he says, you will receive more homes and more brothers and sisters. He's talking about us, the church the divine family of God. And so you'll have Paul give this instruction to that young pastor, Timothy, cutting his teeth there, pastoring that little church in Ephesus. And Paul says to him uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 1, he says, Timothy, do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, Younger women as sisters with absolute purity give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need. So he's saying, treat everybody in the church, okay, as family. And that's just not an instruction to him alone. Like, that's how we are to view one another. Older men as fathers, older women as mothers, peer men as brothers, peer women as sisters, younger as our children, in a sense. In the kingdom, we are given, we are brought into a divine family, the church. And so you have this interesting little letter where Paul writes, it's called Philemon. Philemon was a master, he was a wealthy guy who had slaves, but he became a Christian and his slave became a Christian. And then the slave left him without his permission to go and join Paul in his mission work, But then Paul was going to send that slave Onesimus back to his master, Philemon. And so Paul's writing him and he instructs him. He says, when you receive him back, he left a slave, but I want you to receive him as a brother. That's how you are to think of one another. That's how you are to treat one another with the love and the care of family. In this big family full of all sorts of different types of people. And, you know, it's really interesting, right before the verses we began there in chapter 3, verse 20, the verses before he calls his 12 disciples to follow him. And it's really interesting to see who Jesus picks, and I don't think it's by accident. He calls, one of them is Matthew, the tax collector. We talked about that story a few weeks ago. The one who who was an employee of Rome, who served the Roman occupation over the Jewish people. And Jesus also calls Simon the zealot. I don't know if you know what a zealot was. Like now we, this word has come into our language, zeal, someone who has great passion. But a zealot back in the day, their main mission in life was to overthrow Rome, to get rid of them. And if they had to use violence, they were going to use violence to do it. And if in these 12 guys, he's got the tax collector and he's got the zealot, people that were on completely opposite end of the spectrums. And he says, ha, you are family. And you will find your bond in me that will overcome any difference, any distinction. No matter what you think about the pandemic and the vaccines 
and the mandates and the trucker protests, whether you're over here or whether you're over here, I brought you all together as one family. To give the love of family. And, and so what Jesus is doing in this story, he's not diminishing the biological family. In fact, it's kind of the opposite. In some ways, he's elevating its purpose. He's elevating the purpose of the biological family. Someone put it this way. They said, the goal of Christians in marriage and in family is not to make a house, an island of intimacy, shut off from others in the world, but to make it a home for humankind. The family is just not, not, not to be an island of intimacy for itself alone, but, it, but, but in the kingdom, Jesus says, the family, it's not abolished, but the family is repurposed and now becomes a unit of ministry to offer family to others who lack it, to offer a home and love and care and a table to those who lack it. That is now the greater purpose of the family. And there was a guy... Uh, a president of a well-known uh, Christian seminary um, who had talked about how he had experienced this in his life. Um, he talked about how his father tr- abandoned his family when he was 10 and his mother forced him to leave his home three years later. But his life was turned around when he was taken in by a humble pastor and his wife who shared with him the good news in Psalm 27:10, which says, though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. The family did not simply share scripture with him, but shared their lives and home with him, taking him in as a son and modeling God's love for him. If the church takes seriously Jesus' ideal of what the family is, one of its tasks is to create and nurture families that make a place for all those who want a relationship with God as Father and one another goes on to say, this requires more than just sharing a pew on Sunday and having a fellowship donut afterwards. There are no donuts afterwards, by the way. Instead, we are to allow these persons to become our parents, our children, our siblings. We are to adopt one another, accepting responsibility and commitment to one another. The church is to take those who know the hurt of the world and bring them into the healing of community acceptance. The church is to be a family for those who lack one. And there's so many around us that lack, right? Older ladies that no longer have the husband around or maybe never had one to begin with single. Kids are gone. Young person who hasn't married, middle-aged person who hasn't married, maybe they'll marry, maybe maybe they won't. Family who has no kids, maybe they're barren. You know, it's interesting, in the Old Testament, what was the greatest curse for family? It was barrenness, right? Family was everything. And so, what was the greatest curse? It would be to not be able to have family, to bear children to propagate the family. That was the greatest shame in Jesus' day. But Jesus is saying in the church, nobody should be without family. And so, you know, the church, it was, as I was thinking about this week, it was kind of a corrective for me because I'm a young guy with a young family and I drive down Center Avenue in Stonewall and see all of those kids twice a day going to school and leaving school. And do I mumble under my breath about how long it takes to get down Second Avenue? Yes, I do sometimes. 
But then I go, well, isn't this great? Look at all these families. Oh, and isn't that great? Because we have all these families. We as a church, we can cater to families. We want to be a church where families can come and to help families thrive. And we can be so fixated on that that we can forget that not only is a church a place to equip families to thrive, but the church is called to be a place that becomes a family for those who don't have one. To empower and minister churches to open themselves up to offer that love and that care for those who lack, who are without. Because we all have need of family, right? Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, God said, it is not good for man to be alone. And he wasn't just talking about marriage. He was talking about we all have need to be a part of family. We were created for that. And we see that even in our own biology. I was reading a study about mice the other day, which I found interesting. This is even true in the animal kingdom. Researchers, they, they took a mouse, um, and they put that mouse with a, uh, a group of strange mice that it didn't know in a situation where they had to share an insufficient amount of food. In that situation, the, the outsider mouse developed high blood pressure. But then they found that if you took that same mouse with its brothers and sisters... You put them in a group the same size with the same inadequate amount of food, its blood pressure didn't rise. Having family around it made all the difference. That's the way God has created us. He has created us to thrive in the context of family, and Jesus is redefining the family. The kingdom of God is a divine family. We are called to be family to one another. The kingdom, the church is the place where no one should go through life alone without a mother, a father, a brother, a sister, or children. So Jesus' talk of family in the kingdom is really good news for everybody. It's good news for everybody. It's good news for special need kids waiting for adoption. I know a family in this church right now in the middle of the adoption process, two or three kids holding their breath. That's the work of God. That's the work of the kingdom. The homeless, mentally ill young adult, the teenage mother on her own at age 16, the aging adult who has outlived his children. You know, we got those guys in this church and gals. They're alone. They've reached that stage of life. And they find themselves alone. The businesswoman trying to survive emotionally in an ugly divorce. The struggling single mother who needs a temporary foster home for her child. There is so much need of family around us, church, within our church and around us in our community. And God calls us. He says the kingdom is about being a divine family where no one lacks good news for everyone. And the beautiful thing about Jesus' redefinition of family is that we all have something to give and we all have something to gain. If this is true, if we are called to be family for one, to one another, then that really means there's no such thing as singleness. There's no such thing as barrenness because all of us can have children. 
There's no such thing as an orphan because all of us can have mothers and fathers, that sort of love. I, a few years before I came here, I did a funeral for an elderly lady in Blind River, Ontario by the name of Shirley Stewart. She never got married, but she had a lot of kids, like not in that way. She had a lot of kids. I, I remember she devoted her life to like helping uh, young people grow in a relationship with God. And I remember at her funeral, she died in her mid-80s, had always been alone, lived on her own. And I remember at that funeral, one after another, these people that were now young adults that had been the kids coming up and saying, she changed my life. She was a mother to me. She was the mother I never had. And I just remember thinking, they're going, man, I thought this woman was single and barren. That was not true. She had so many children. Her family was so large. And she's going to enjoy them in heaven forever and ever. In the kingdom of God, family means that all of us have something to give. We all have that love and that care to give. And we all have something to receive as well. So let me ask you a few questions. You can put these questions on the board as we bring this to a close. As a church, a part of God's kingdom, called to be family, we're called to seek out the needy and the hurting, not only to help them mend their families, but to create new family relationships in the bonds of faith. So here's a few questions I want to give to you to ponder and to pray over, maybe to bring home with you to talk with someone uh, around your uh, table with at lunch. If you are doing that with somebody, first of all, is there any way, big or small, where you're putting obligation to family over obedience to God, where you've been feeling some pressure from those close to you to deter you away from something you feel God or know God is calling you to do? What would it look like for you to be devoted to God in that situation? Second question, are you seeking to find family in the church? You know, there's many of us that we, ha we have a need of family. We might find ourselves alone or hurting. Are, are, are you seeking to find that within this family? Not just on a Sunday morning, but to, but to take the, have the courage to place yourselves in certain settings, more intimate settings, life groups or other groups where you can find the family that God wants to give you in His kingdom. Are you seeking that? Are you open to receiving that? And lastly, something for us all to ponder, what would it look like for you, whether as an individual or as a whole family unit, what would it look like for you to offer family to those who lack it? Maybe it's inviting someone in the church who doesn't have anyone to go home to, to inviting them to come and to share a meal around your table and to build a relationship. It could look so many different ways, but what would it look like for you to offer family to those who lack it? In this church, amongst this group of people, but also in the community itself, what would that look like? To offer family. I just want to invite you to put that question before God right now. Each one of us, 
um, speaking to him. He can hear each one of us. He can speak with each one of us. Can I invite you to a moment of prayer just to bow your head? The worship team is going to come lead us in a final song. Before they do that, I just want us to take a moment to come to God, first of all, individually, and just put those questions to God and say, God, show me what it would look like to be family to another who needs it. God, who have you put around me that I could give family to? God, I know in a moment we're going to pray the Lord's Prayer together, which begins with those words, Our Father. And what an awesome thing it is that we can call you not just God, not just Master, not just Lord, but that we can actually call you Father because you call us to. You have made us your child through your Son, Jesus. Yet to all who received Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to be called children of God, children not born of natural descent or a husband's will, but children born of God. Thank you, God, that while we were orphans in this world spiritually, that through your Son, Jesus, you have made a way for us to know you as loving Father, now and forevermore. What a privilege that is. And not just to have that sort of relationship with you, to know that you're, you are that to us, but, but just to know that when we receive you as a father, we, we get a whole big family that comes with it, a whole bunch of brothers and sisters to love, to be loved by. God, would you just show us what it would look like in this church, in our families, in our homes, in our individual lives, would you show us what it is that we each have to give that we can offer to someone else, offer that gift of family to someone who lacks it? And in so doing that, build your kingdom. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.